This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, February 6th, 2023, a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and around the clock for free on demand when the show is over on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm joining Brett Bayer's panel right around quarter to seven Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. Here's the lineup today on the radio side. We'll get to our first guest momentarily. Trey Gowdy will be here later this hour. Britt Hume in the next hour. Gordon Chang after that. So we are really locked and loaded on a busy Monday. And we begin with our colleague Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. Jennifer, always good to have you. Welcome back. Thank you, Guy. So news coming at us fast and furious over the weekend involving this Chinese espionage balloon blown out of the sky on Saturday. My understanding is pieces of that equipment now being recovered out in the ocean. It was a a large footprint of debris. That's going to be analyzed. What's the very latest you're hearing? Because I know we're learning more and more about the size and capabilities of this thing. Well, we just got a briefing from General Van Herc, Glenn Van Herc, who's the head of U.S. Northern Command, and he's responsible for protecting the continental United States. And he said that this balloon was 200 feet tall, carrying one to 2,000 pounds of equipment underneath, including photographic sensors, possible explosives. It was as big as a regional jet, he said. And he said that the Navy vessels that are out at sea right now off the coast of South Carolina have been able to uh, collect most of the surface debris uh, that was floating on the surface of the waters, the the debris field is the size of 15 football fields by 15 football fields. Uh, much of that debris that's been collected is already en route back to uh, to the FBI Quantico Labs in Virginia. Uh, the amphibious ship, the USS Carter Hall, the USS Oscar Austin, and Philippine Sea are all involved in the rescue efforts. They're waiting. Uh, I think Navy divers and underwater drones will be be used for anything that fell beneath the surface. The, uh, they're lucky because they took the shot about six miles off the coast of South Carolina. That was uh, with, you know, that was on purpose because they wanted the debris to fall in shallow waters, and it's in uh, waters that are about 47 feet deep. Uh, the shot was taken by an F-22 pilot. Two F-22s took off from Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. The pilot that uh, took the shot with a signed winder that brought down the balloon at 239 
9 p.m. on Saturday. His call sign was Frank 01. The second F-22 pilot, his call sign was uh, Frank was Luke 01. Frank Luke, you might remember, in World War One, was a Medal of Honor recipient who shot down 17 German enemy surveillance balloons. So there was some symbolism to the choice of call signs as well. Guy. We had that takedown of the balloon live on our air on Fox News Channel. As it happened in real time, Arthel Neville jumping in to interrupt our colleague Jack Keane, who was giving his analysis. And it's like, okay, it happened. We've seen a lot of images from the ground, videos of people cheering. People had their cell phones out. This thing was visible from the ground. And it makes more sense when you're describing how huge it was. To me, Jennifer, it's clear that the Chinese knew they would get caught. And it's not like this thing was terribly subtle. But there are a bunch of reports floating around about the possibility of previous incursions of similar balloons during the Trump administration, uh, maybe not as serious, not going across the whole continental United States. But then there are top officials from the administration, the previous one, denying that they were ever briefed on any such thing. That's one of the many strange components to this story, kind of confusing. Do you have any clarity on that or are we still trying to figure out what's true and what isn't? Well, no, we've had an opportunity to question General Van Herc and others about uh, those reports. There were three instances under the Trump administration that these uh, similar Chinese balloons did cross into the United States, but these were very different incidents. They were they did occur in Florida, Texas, Hawaii, Guam. Uh, there, it also happened once before during the Biden administration, but these were very different instances. They didn't the the balloons did not spend much time over uh, U.S. airspace during that time. And from what we understand, and General Van Herc was asked about this, the only reason uh, that this administration knows about those balloons, those balloons were not reported at the time up the chain of command to the White House, to the president, to his national security team. Uh, They were relatively low level. But when the intelligence experts were looking backwards over the intelligence, that's when they could look at the data and they saw that there had been previous instances. So it's understandable that the Trump administration officials say they were never briefed on those incidences. Even General Van Herc admitted today that that was an intelligence gap at the time. Uh, My suspicion, without anyone spelling it out, is that there was, uh, perhaps it was satellites that detected this and there are gaps, you know, as satellites are going around the world and you can have, uh, you can have gaps in which you don't see something. The other thing that General Van Herc said today, which was interesting because we asked him again about why he didn't opt to shoot this down over the Aleutian Islands after it entered Alaskan airspace. And he said very clearly that he did not, uh, that at that time the balloon was not viewed as um, uh, posing a physical military threat to North America. He didn't, he said it was not demonstrating hostile um, intent. And so he really didn't have uh, uh, the ability to shoot it down at that at that time or any any sort of reason to what changed was once that balloon uh, crossed over into Canada, stayed over the land, began loitering and then crossed on January 31st into the continental U.S. Uh, through Idaho and then entered Montana. It was behaving. They were tracking it and it was behaving differently than the past. It was loitering. It was able to maneuver. And that's what then uh, brought this to uh, the White House's attention to the to top military leaders. Uh, the U.S. military was following it from the time it uh, crossed into Alaska on January 28th. But it was really the behavior that uh, made this balloon different. It was much more brazen in terms of what it was trying to do. 
So this is another question about the whole timeline, because a lot of Americans will say, OK, that's what a little more than a week that we were tracking this thing. And it took what day eight, I guess, to shoot it down. There were comments from the president saying that he was briefed last Wednesday about mm-hmm. the existence of this balloon. And he said that he at that time, I don't know if it was an order or it was his suggestion that they shoot it down. And then I guess he got incoming recommendations to wait. Obviously, they waited multiple days after that. Was there a presidential shoot-down order on that Wednesday, or was that his instinct? And then some of the, the brass said, well, Mr. President, for these reasons, we recommend waiting. I think that's something people are also wondering these days. It's No, we've reported that the president ordered that the balloon be shot down when it was deemed safe to do so. So the order was given on Wednesday, February 1st, uh, when the president was briefed by his national security team. The national security team, security team and the U.S. military assessed that they could not rule out American casualties if they shot it down over the continental U.S. And so they decided, they also decided, we've learned today, that there were ways in which they could collect intelligence on this spy plane as it was flying across the U.S. So they sent up, we've confirmed, two uh, U-2 spy planes, which flew alongside the balloon, and they were collecting intelligence on the balloon and also scrambling uh, some of the communications from the balloon. Uh, and, And so they feel that those days that they were watching it come across the U.S., they were able to mitigate the uh, the amount of surveillance of any sensitive sites. Uh, they wouldn't tell us how they would do so, but they it's assumed that they put up additional um, uh, cyber shields over the sensitive sites like the nuclear silos and the, the, um, the Air Force bases that the balloon may have flown over. And then they had these U-2 spy planes, which can fly up at 70,000 feet, and they were collecting intelligence on this balloon as it moved across the U.S. So, so it was a complicated picture and a complicated uh, set of decisions that had to be made. But the president made the decision on Wednesday, February 1st, to order the, the spy plane to be shot down. The military then decided that it was safest to wait until it exited the continental U.S., got out over uh, internet over before it got to international waters, you know, you can only shoot something down 12 miles off your coast. So they had just a limited amount of time, a few minutes in which they could shoot it down. They took the shot at 2.39 p.m. on Saturday. An F-22 fighter pilot gets the kill and they brought down the spy plane. The Chinese government, meanwhile, Jennifer, has been full of all sorts of stories. They were claiming that this was just, you know, a a balloon that had nothing to do with surveillance. It was just, you know, climate detection, and it just blew off course. We know through our intelligence that is false. That's a lie. Then when their balloon was shot down, they made some angry noises about how this was a violation of international law and an unnecessary overreaction by the United States. Is anyone inside the Pentagon or the U.S. government, to your knowledge, taking those uh, complaints seriously, or is that just a little bit of face-saving bravado from Beijing? I would say that's face-saving bravado. Nobody's taking those, the complaints or the explanation from the Chinese seriously here at the Pentagon. In fact, they're scoffing at it, I would say. Uh, they know that uh, the Chinese now know that uh, that the U.S. will shoot down their spy balloons. Uh, there's a second balloon, remember, that's in Latin America. And I've been told from those that I asked, what will you do if it gets close to the U.S.? And I, I think we all know now what would be done. I think it's easy to look 
back at some of these previous um, balloons, you have to remember there are lots of balloons and there are lots of uh, incursions into U.S. airspace all the time. And the U.S. military is constantly assessing what poses a threat, what doesn't. Um, And as one person said to me, there are weather balloons, legitimate weather balloons. There are Google Earth balloons that are up. And you don't just shoot at everything that comes into into U.S. airspace. I think that Mm -hmm. is why General Van Herc said that once this balloon came over Alaska, it really wasn't deemed to be posing a threat, but it was once it went over Canada and then started loitering over um, Idaho and Montana that, that they realized it was behaving differently. Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. Great stuff, Jennifer. Thank you very much for that update. Thanks, Guy. With that, we will step aside. We'll take a quick break. I have a few more thoughts on this on the other side. We'll get to that and much more just underway here on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So I was tracking this balloon situation over the weekend, and they finally shot the thing down. I think there's an argument they could have or should have done it much earlier. I understand some of the sensitivities that were at play and the decision-making that went into this, and I know a lot of people were instantly very critical or instantly very defensive based on their politics. And I'm not sure it's necessarily that clean cut one way or another. Right? I think that there are arguments to be made in favor of the course of action that the Biden team ultimately went with. Now, of course, we don't have you know, a full picture of what really happened. I understand that for a lot of conservatives, myself included, there is an instinct not to trust the Biden administration or to assume that there was weakness here. Because we've seen that demonstrated over and over again. Afghanistan being at the very top of that list, of course. And frankly, there has been some reporting that the Biden administration only started to take a tougher line on this and started, you know, shifting their thinking when they were worried that they would be perceived as weak on China if they didn't. Now, to the extent that they were worried more about perceptions then the reality of the threat and the brazen provocation from China, I think that would underscore some of the big problems with this administration, with this president. Again, I think looking now back at it over the last week plus, you can probably make, based on incomplete information, a cogent case in favor of what they ended up doing. But was there indecision in the very early days and hours? Did they overestimate the concern about civilian casualties on the ground? Are they backfilling good-sounding stuff to make it seem like they always had a good plan on this thing? Or were they on top of it? It's sort of hard to know. And some of that's going to have to remain classified for obvious reasons. But the fact that there was at least, as I mentioned, some reporting that they were worried about the optics and what they would look like in terms of weakness on China, that is not terribly encouraging. It's not about what they look like. It's about what they're actually doing, what their priorities are. 
Because, frankly, before this went public, before there was a local newspaper that reported on it and there were people taking photos of the thing and it started to build momentum and gathering attention in the public eye, up until that point, even though we were aware of its existence, the U.S. was, it seemed like the plan was to not mention it at all, right? Not get into it, not raise it as an issue. Secretary of State was, it appears, still on track to go over on this diplomatic trip to Beijing. And then once the cat was out of the bag, then things kind of changed in the public posture of the administration. Was that because they had a really cogent, smart plan to watch this thing and they were all over it? Or did they get more hawkish because they were worried about political perception? I don't know. Maybe it was a little bit of both. So I think some of it is just like paint by numbers, complaining by Republicans. And some of the defenses from Democrats, I mean, for quite a number of days, you had Democrats ridiculing conservatives for being upset and worried about this. Like, oh, look at these weird Republicans obsessed over a balloon. Well, it was a 200 foot tall Chinese espionage balloon carrying lots of sensitive equipment, flying over sensitive sites. And apparently with explosives on board, we think to self-destruct if necessary to prevent this technology. This is the theory from falling into our hands, which now it has after the shootdown. It was just like so fundamentally unserious of a lot of these progressives and elected Democrats, just like accusing Republicans of being knee jerk Biden haters. But they were making fools of themselves in the opposite direction. Congressman Don Beyer it's a Democrat from Northern Virginia. And after the thing got shot down on Saturday, he tweeted, great news for my Republican colleagues. They can stop panicking about a balloon now. This is like very snarky and dismissive of the whole thing. Which is the wrong approach, by the way. This is one of our greatest adversaries and would-be enemies in the world. A rising, increasingly aggressive and hostile China flying big pieces of technology over our territory it is in order to gather intelligence that is a big deal period and to have and he wasn't the only member of congress making these types of dismissals these types of comments the reason i single him out congressman buyer is because people might recall and several people on social media reminded him and others that he had a staffer an aide on his team Not that long ago, fired for dot, 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 Chinese espionage. You would think if you have a staffer who's a Chinese spy and you've got to fire her, if the Chinese are engaged in more espionage in the following months, you might not want to just sort of mock it as not a big deal. I'm not sure if that's a great look for Don Beyer and his ilk. We'll have more on this later on in the program. Gordon Chang is going to be here. Let's take a break. Trey Gowdy is next. Stay tuned for that on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 
We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show in D.C. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. Back with us, Trey Gowdy, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, a Fox News contributor, host of Sunday Night in America, Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. He's got the Trey Gowdy podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Very busy guy. Also out with a new book entitled Start, Stay, or Leave, The Art of Decision-Making. Trey Gowdy, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. You know, I was sitting there thinking I've had a hard time, like, holding on to a job. Just listening to you go through the <laughs> things that I have done, I I need to stick around more. I need to read that book and stay. Because <laughs> at some point, like, this intro is going to become unwieldy. We'll be halfway through the segment, then I'll <laughs> finally finish reading all of your jobs. Then we'll talk for, like, seven minutes max. Let's talk about the book, Start, Stay, or Leave. You're offering kind of life advice not to young people exclusively, but as people are sort of starting off their lives, starting off their careers, you're trying to help folks think through making big decisions in their lives. What's the elevator pitch on this book, and what's some of the top-level advice you can share with us? Yeah, well, thank you, Guy. Just We get one shot at this gift called Life, and a lot of life, I mean – Think about the decisions you make, guy. Where to go to school? What to major in? Um, I mean, you're in D.C. right now, but you've other other options. So, I mean, life is about decisions. And I, I argue to people, if we can kind of think of what we want to be remembered or said by those that care the most about us at the end, are we making decisions that get us closer to that final or closing argument? So I've made a ton of mistakes. I, I've left jobs that I loved, and I've stayed in jobs that I didn't like. And both were probably the right decision. But how to balance logic and and passion or emotion with intuition and become the best decision makers we can be. One of the decisions that you made was to leave Congress, even though being in a position at the time that you were influential, you had a gavel, you were – making your way sort of up the food chain in Congress, and you finally said, you know what, no, it's time for me to leave. Is that something that you ever look back on with regret, part one? Part two, given part of the bio that I just read, your role as the chairman of the Oversight Committee, we just had the new chairman of that committee on Friday. What advice would you offer him and the folks on that committee on the right side of the aisle in terms of their priorities, their focus over these next two years, having sat you know, with that gavel before? Well, Jamie is going to do a lot better job than I did. I was lucky I got to follow Jason Chaffetz. So if I showed up sober for work, that was considered successful. (laughs) I'm kidding. He doesn't drink. Wow. Uh, I'm kidding. I love Jason Chaffetz. The the big (laughs) thing, guys, is set the right expectations. Um, And and that's, you know, one of the – no, I do not regret leaving uh, Congress. And one of the reasons for that is – you know, we tell folks, voters and our constituents that we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And the reality is we're going to try to do some of that. We may not be successful. I mean, yeah, Jamie gets to send subpoenas, but it's the executive branch that enforces those subpoenas. So can he compel witnesses to come before him? Can he compel documents? Not if it goes to court, because I promise you the Biden administration is not going to prosecute a contempt of Congress citation against anyone else in the Biden administration. So right expectations. I'm not saying like, you know, 
be unambitious. I'm just saying level with people. This is what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to get these witnesses in. We're going to try to find out X, Y, Z, whether it's a memo from the Department of Justice, whether it's the feckless withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to do our dead level best. But, you know, elections have consequences. And when you do not have the executive branch, then you do not have the power to enforce the law. So Jamie and other Republican chairpersons are dependent upon the executive branch to back them up. And one of my critiques or criticisms about the state of our country is we've kind of lost branch integrity. We've kind of lost this notion that we may be in different parties, but we're in the same branch. We're going to stick up for this branch. We're a very executive branch centric country now and judicial and judicial branch, everything but the legislative branch. Let's talk about electoral politics and the executive, since you brought it up. Democrats moving to put your state, South Carolina, at the very front of the line in their nominating process. Republicans are saying, nope, we're sticking with tradition. The Democrats are doing their moves, it appears, absolutely at the behest of Joe Biden. South Carolina was instrumental, of course, in his political comeback and ultimately claiming the nomination in 2020. So what do you make as a South Carolinian? What do you make of that plan? Do you think that Republicans would be wise to follow suit? Are you more loyal to the process or to your state? I'm just sort of wondering how you're thinking about that, because it's it's an interesting shift that they're attempting. It is. And, and, and you're you're a lot brighter than I am, Guy. I'm sitting here thinking, OK, you're moving to a state that you literally have zero chance of winning in a, in a general election. I mean, the Democrats are not going to win South Carolina in my lifetime. Iowa, New Hampshire, you got more of a shot. Um, those are or have been in the recent past swing states. Um, I, I think it's a testimony to how much influence, um, I don't want to say power, but influence that Mr. Clyburn has. Uh, Joe Biden would not be the nominee if it were not for Mr. Clyburn. Um, I get that it's probably friendlier ground for Joe Biden in a contested primary, but he's got zero chance of winning the uh, general election in South Carolina. He's not going to win the electoral votes from the state. I, I, I'm not smart enough to know whether Republicans should start with Iowa. They tell me it's a caucus, which is very, very different from a primary. Uh, New Hampshire, um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of friends that are going to be traveling to those two states, so I want to be somewhat measured in what I say. I, I don't, I don't know that that. Having the order that we've had has led to um, like an absurd choice in the nominee. I think the nominee was probably going to be the same no matter the order in which we did it. So why change it? And, you know, Democrats, good luck explaining to Iowa and New Hampshire why you're starting with a state you literally have no chance of winning in a general election. You just made a passing reference to some friends of yours, one of whom I might imagine is the former governor of your state, Nikki Haley. She'll be announcing for president next week in Charleston. Let's just start there. What do you think of her chances uh, and her resume going into that race? I I love Governor Haley. Um, I have been a fan of her since she was fourth in a four-way primary for governor, and people were encouraging her to drop out. And she wound up beating uh, three really, really uh, prominent, well-funded men for the nomination. She is unafraid. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't pretend to be as close to her as I would be Tim Scott or Mike Pompeo, but um, she is formidable, and she is unafraid. Um, I, I don't know really where the Republican Party is right now in terms of what they're looking for, uh, how they value electability versus, you know, scoring 100 on some orthodoxy test. Um, she, um, I don't think, has ever lost a race, and she would be uh, – you would – underestimate her at your own peril. Tim Scott, another name that you just name-checked, close with him. You guys do the road show sometimes. He's uh, going to be a guest on this program tomorrow. We love Senator Tim Scott. There are whispers out there, maybe louder than whispers, that he's testing the waters as well. Do you think he would be someone who, in your mind, should jump into this race? Yeah, I'm a confess guy. I have zero objectivity when it comes to Tim Scott. Um, but yes, um, I think his message, you know, I just was at the Reagan library, uh, last week. And when I think of Reagan and that optimism and hopefulness, I think of Tim Scott, that you can be conservative and not upset about it, not mad about it, but it's also not lost on me. I don't think Ronald Reagan would win the nomination this day and age. I don't know that that's what Republican primary voters are looking for. Here's what I can tell you about Tim Scott. You do not need to worry about him becoming something he is not in search of the nomination. If he runs, and I hope he does, if he runs, he's going to say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. I am, I am hopeful. I am optimistic. Ironically, guy, he's got as much of a reason to have a chip on his shoulder as anyone, but he does not. I think, Tim, if this is what you're looking for in a leader – then, then consider me. If you want something else, I'm not going to change. Do you think a more crowded field or a similarly crowded field compared to what we saw in 2016 is a healthy thing for the Republican Party? I think last time people say, yep, the more the merrier, let a thousand flowers bloom and see who, you know, who has the best opportunity to win or what have you. There's another dynamic here at play. It's not a mystery to any of us where you've got former president with a big consolidated base, if you've got 15 other people running, is there a risk of a rerun? Where do you come down on that? There probably is. I do remember the argument. I mean, it's kind of vague back in 2016, but I remember the argument that, that they wanted to kind of winnow the field down, and then it would ultimately be a you know binary choice between either Cruz and Trump or Marco and Trump or fill in the blank and President Trump then nominee Trump, then candidate Trump would have won no matter what that binary choice was. I don't get that same sense anymore. Um, I, I could be dead wrong. I think if what I don't want to see are candidates that really don't have a chance, candidates that are you know selling books. I mean, if anybody tells you that I'm running for president, first of all, don't believe anything else they tell you, but also just know, <laughs> well, he's he's obviously trying to boost his podcast numbers because the guy's got no chance in the world. So if you, you, you get up on the problem. debate stage and your opening statement for president is uh, the sales pitch for start, stay or leave. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you all invited me here. I'd like to mention my new book to you. I, I think there is some of that that goes on in politics. But, you know, Nikki Pompeo, Tim Scott, uh, you can throw another. And I think Tommy Cotton has decided not to run. But I mean, these are all to me really serious people who you can imagine being the leader of the free world. 
So if you fit that qualification, um, then I would say the more the merrier, because by the time, you know, the debates kind of flesh out, um, I don't know that the votes have started. I mean, I think like some nominee or some candidates drop out even before Iowa. Mm -hmm. So I think the vice president got the same number of like delegates that you and I got. Right. I mean, she got none. That's right. So, yeah, she didn't make it to Iowa and neither did we. So that that is absolutely true. Uh, I just I would hope that that winnowing might happen sooner than later for various reasons. But your point is well taken. Trey Gowdy, one last point here. I did not mention this in your intro because it's already so long, as you point out. But I could have added to the bio that you are the occasional appearer. And this comes in a very throwback form on Forensic Files, which is a program that I watch from time to time late at night. Uh, to scare myself about crimes that happened in the 90s. Uh, And you show up as a prosecutor with various uh, hairstyles, very vintage, and you talk about certain crimes. If you can put that hat on me uh, on for just a second here for me, there is a high-profile murder trial happening in your state that's really captured a lot of attention across the country, this Murdoch trial. There's all sorts of twists and turns. My understanding is there's a big HBO documentary about it. I don't know that much about it. I've done a little bit of reading, and from what I have read, it's intriguing and very complicated. As a former prosecutor and the occasional sort of criminal justice pundit on TV, and since it is a South Carolina story, what do you make of this trial? Yeah, I actually served with Alex Murdoch's uh, father. He was the district attorney when I was the district attorney. There were only 16 of us. Uh, Prominent lawyer uh, charged with uh, shooting his wife and son in the head. Uh, literally blowing their heads off. I don't mean that figuratively, literally doing it. Um, And so, of course, your first question, everybody's first question is why, which ironically, prosecutors never have to prove why. You never have to prove motive. But it's what the jury wants to know. So what they're doing right now, actually, in court is trying to give the jury a sense of why this otherwise prominent lawyer would literally take the heads off the two people he claimed to love. I think they can put him at the murder scene. Um, You have false exculpatory statements, which I love. They're better than confessions. It's someone lying to get themselves out of trouble, and that's not a good look with the jury. But you've got to, like, give them a reason. Why would you do this? He's in a ton of financial problems, stealing allegedly money from his law firm and clients, which gets you disbarred. Now, to my head, you know, okay – I'm going to maybe be in a little bit of trouble for stealing money, so let me go commit double capital eligible murder. That's a leap for me. I mean, you talk about trouble. The death penalty is trouble. They're not seeking Mm -hmm. it, but it's eligible. So you've got drugs mixed in. Uh, The why is what vexes people, but if the what and the who are good enough – I mean, you got a guy lying. You got a guy in a blue shirt and long pants right before the killings, and then he changes clothes. I mean, I'm sitting there about to crawl through the television saying, Did you find the clothes? Did you look for the clothes? I mean, my guess is you're not going to find the clothes that he was wearing uh, at the time of the murder if he committed it. But that's something the jury needs to know is that, I mean, I mean, what's the last time, guy, you went and threw out a, you know, a new shirt and a new pair of pants? and can't tell anybody where they are or what dump they're in, that just makes you look guilty as sin. Mm. Well, regardless of what the facts end up being and how this trial turns out, 
based on just that little thumbnail sketch you gave us of the fact pattern across really years of decisions, it seems like there were some very poor decisions made at many different turns. Uh, perhaps this individual could have used a copy of Start, Stay, or Leave, not to trivialize it, but some really bad decisions and perhaps a, a really horrific one at the end. It's a trial that the country is watching closely, and I know that you're all over it for the reasons that you just laid out. Trey Gowdy, former House Oversight Committee chairman, host of Sunday Night in America on Fox News. He's a Fox News contributor, Trey Gowdy podcast, and this book it's out now everywhere. Start, stay, or leave the art of decision-making. Trey, always appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Likewise, Guy. You take care. I'm a big fan of yours, so thank you for having me on. It's uh, mutual, sir. With that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back next. Guy Benson will be right back. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, just some awful news today. Out of the Middle East, the Associated Press reporting a powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake rocked wide swaths of Turkey and neighboring Syria Monday, killing more than 3,400 people, injuring thousands more as it toppled thousands of buildings and trapped residents under mounds of rubble. Authorities fear the death toll will keep climbing as rescuers search through tangles of metal and concrete for survivors. This is a region already beset by Syria's civil war over the last dozen years and an ongoing refugee crisis. I mean, just another body blow for the people of Syria. And you look at an earthquake that powerful and then you consider that their standards, their safety standards for construction and that sort of thing are nowhere near what they are in the U.S. or in the West that's why I think this death toll is already as high as it is and will likely keep growing. I saw one estimate it could be as high as 20,000 people. So please pray for folks in that part of the world. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Britt Hume will join us at the top of the next hour. Stay tuned. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day after the show. Shoot us a follow on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. On those platforms, my personal handle is at Guy P. Benson. A big shout out to our new affiliate, KDON, KDWN in Las Vegas, the talk of Las Vegas, brand new member of the Guy Benson Show radio family every weeknight, local time. Just thrilled to have you guys there. I've got a very good friend out in Vegas, so perhaps I'll have to come visit sometime soon. I always get up to some fun, brief trouble when I'm in Vegas. Fox News alert. The Dow closing slightly down today. In the red by 36 points at the close. Dow finishing up at 33,889. With us now, Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. And Britt, as always, great to have you. Thanks, Guy. Good to talk to you. We've got the State of the Union address tomorrow. Uh, We'll talk a bit about it in the lead-up tomorrow. Uh, 
I'm not really sure this annual ritual is what it used to be. Um, is it still a valuable tool? Is it overrated? I know some people every year call for it to be abolished or just go back to sending you know, a, a letter to Congress and have that be the end of it. What's your view on the State of the Union? Well, it's very hard for a president to resist the temptation to have all the broadcast networks uh, and you know, PBS as well as, I guess, one of them, uh, carrying you live in prime time. But I think most Americans on State of the Union night are grateful for the fact that they're streaming video now, and you don't have to you don't have to settle for the fare that's offered on the networks because the speeches, uh, unlike say a you know inaugural address or or a speech given in the middle of a crisis from the White House or whatever, uh, State of the Union addresses are, are endlessly programmatic. There are all kinds of political you know eyes to be dotted and T's to be crossed, and they tend to be tedious. And and their half-life is about a day and a half. But we cover them, and we always have, and so here we go again. Yeah, they're tedious. Often they're very long as well, and all the interruptions for applause and so on. Uh, a big difference, obviously, this time you'll have President Biden and then behind him Vice President Harris and no longer Speaker Pelosi. There'll be a Republican behind him and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, a bit of a changing of the guard there, changing the dynamics in Washington. We'll see how much that's reflected in the speech. On the subject of Joe Biden, back-to-back polls, Britt, in the last couple of days yesterday, there's the Washington Post-ABC News poll, then a new one today from the Associated Press, both showing a substantial majority of Democrats wanting Joe Biden to forego a re-election campaign. They don't want to see him attempt to win four more years in office In the AP poll nationally, only 22 percent of voters polled overall said they want Biden to run again. Twenty two percent. My question to you is this. I think some of the conventional wisdom in D.C. after the midterm election was this is, you know, some wind in the sails of Joe Biden. The long knives that were ready to plunge into his back politically are going back in their sheaths because they outperformed on the Democratic side. And given some of the dearth of better options, it was a full head of steam for Joe Biden going into the reelect. And it seems like reportedly that is still very likely to happen. But I guess voters didn't really get the memo. He has slid even further, particularly among his own base on this question. Why do you think that is in spite of what was relatively good news for his party a few months ago? Because I think people are ready to move on from this generation of leaders. Um, I think you know people. I mean, it's possible if, if, if that uh, the political system, the two parties will deliver us the same choice we had the last time. But I think people are ready to to move in a different direction, and it may be up to the voters to finally pound that message home um, by in both parties rejecting the the current uh, front runners. One uh, of those front people, runners. Go ahead. I was going to say. Both, you know, Donald Trump is the front runner on the Republican side, and certainly the incumbent president is the front runner on the Democratic side, despite the misgivings that people have of him uh, about him and his own party. Yeah, and on the Republican side, you mentioned Donald Trump. There was a story over the weekend from Bloomberg. Here's the lead: Democrats are unfazed, even giddy, about a possible 2024 rematch between President Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But the prospect of facing upstart Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is prompting whispers of angst within Democratic circles. 
Britt, we talked last week on this program about DNC rapid response actually doing some rapid response on Trump's behalf to hit Ron DeSantis on COVID policies in Florida, of all things. Uh, This is kind of the quiet part out loud. The Democrats are saying unambiguously, really, to anyone who will listen, we really want to face Donald Trump again. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's the way a lot of Democratic strategists feel. The Democrats appear to be somewhat schizophrenic in their attitude toward Trump. They loathe him, can't stand him, yep. and they fear him. At the same time, they look at what happened last time, and they look at the weakness of Biden as a candidate, and he was weak even in 2020, in my view. Um, and they think Trump may be the only guy Biden could beat if it is Biden. So I think that's so. That, so on the one hand, they're afraid of him. On the other hand, they kind of wanted to be nominated because they think he's beatable. I think he's beatable too. I mean, I, I think there's no doubt about that. On the current president, the incumbent, we sort of just briefly uh, glanced on this a moment ago, but I have seen a lot of reporting that he is going to formally throw his hat in the ring for re-election, announce the re-election campaign, really. Soon. I mean, in the wake of the State of the Union address, that seems to be the timeline uh, that has been telegraphed publicly. Apparently, the president's team is all behind it. His family's all behind it. Uh, He seems to really be intent on running again, in spite of all of these numbers with a ton of people who don't want him to do so. Is this just sort of inertia? It's really hard to uproot an incumbent president, either in a primary or even, frankly, in a general? Is this the Democrats saying, well, we don't like him, we want to move forward, but they look at their other options and say, oh, gosh, you know, maybe we got to stick with this guy after all? What's happening there? I think what you've described is probably about correct. I mean, it is awfully hard to unseat an incumbent president. It hasn't happened very often. and I, But at this time could be different for the simple reason that I think, as I've just said, that, that these – that the public is really ready to move on and would like to see a new generation of leaders come in. And that applies, you know, across the board. I think people, while they might have, you know, had some respect for Nancy Pelosi, are kind of glad that she's gone, believing that she's too old. Uh, I think people believe that Biden is too old. Um, Trump is more energetic than Biden, because almost anybody is. But, but uh <laughs> But I think people are ready to move on from him as well to a new generation of leaders, which is why DeSantis looks pretty like a pretty hot ticket right now. now who knows what will happen once the campaign, if he makes one, begins and he gets attacked from all sides, as he will be. And we'll see how well he stands up to all that. But uh, you know, people are looking for somebody different. Since you mentioned it's really hard to unseat an incumbent, especially in a primary. So you got a sitting president. It has been tried before. It's awfully difficult. Just tapping into your historical knowledge, having covered campaigns for a long time, I know I, I wasn't around yet, but I know that Jimmy Carter was really struggling in 1980. There were rumblings within the, within the party that he was going to be a, a big electoral drag. He couldn't win again. Ted Kennedy, I believe, challenged him uh, from, from the left and just got walloped. I mean, here's Kennedy with a big family name. Uh, got crushed even in his backyard up in New Hampshire. Is that is the Carter Biden comparison useful in any way here, or uh, is it apples and oranges? Well, it's just simply a further reminder of how difficult difficult it is to, to unseat an incumbent. I mean, it was I remember covering. I mean, I was I was a reporter for the in the Washington bureau at ABC News at the time. 
And I remember people around our office who were, you know, senior to me were saying, you know, once Kennedy gets underway, it could be a juggernaut. There may be no stopping him, and and uh, and he got, you know, he got pretty well taken care of. Although at the convention, it should be remembered, uh, the party was you know, divided because the Kennedy people were unhappy, and there were a lot of them, and they were very concerned whether they could have that moment at the end of the convention where the where the winner Carter and the loser Kennedy would stand side by side, their hands clasped together in the air. And I guess they finally did get that moment. But that was the big story at the convention that year: was what 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 would Kennedy do? So, and it hurt Carter that he had, you know, a somewhat divided party and and uh, disgruntled liberals in the party, thinking he hadn't done a very good job. And of course, he got killed in the in the in the in the end. I mean, the party at the, at the last minute, the race looked close against Reagan in in '80, but in the end, it was a landslide. Yeah, and I mean, Reagan won big. He won even bigger four years later. You know, I don't think anyone can win that number of states anytime soon, given how polarized we are in this country. But there seems like there could be a scenario, especially if things go south in new ways economically uh, late this year or sometime in 2024. It seems like the ground could be fertile for a pretty decisive or clarifying election in 2024 in a way that we haven't had here in a while. Do you think that's true? I think it's possible. um, And if we get a recession, it becomes even more possible. Um, you know, whether that'll actually come to pass, I don't know. The economy, the United States economy, it's always worth remembering, is a force of nature. And it can plow through the most extraordinary headwinds and continue to grow. That doesn't mean it always, it won't always do that, but it, it, is, it defied expectations many times and could again, which would be, which would be very helpful to, uh, to, vice, to President Biden. But let me say this about that. I think that the public lost faith in President Biden over Afghanistan, and he's never been able to regain it. And right now, the economy, at least on paper, appears to be doing okay. You know, the market is soft, and you know, and there are signs of, of slowing in parts of the economy. And yet, we had this staggering number of jobs created, at least this initial report. It was a great um, jobs report, and yet the numbers aren't really budging for Joe Biden, which is part of the alarm bells we're talking about inside his party. It's going to be a fascinating two years ahead. Britt Hume, always appreciate your time, sir. We'll have you back soon on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Back here in D.C., so we'll give you a crime update here in D.C. I mean, it's just constant. Just a steady stream of bad, bad crime news in the nation's capital. The latest one, this is weird. Apparently there are criminals driving all over the district. And when they see someone in an expensive looking jacket or coat, because it was very cold over the weekend and late last week, they have been jumping out of cars and then robbing people of their coats at gunpoint. So like the Canada Goose brand, which I guess is sought after and expensive, people walking around D.C. in those coats, those jackets, have been robbed. Just like literally the clothing taken off of their body with a gun pointed at them, then they run off. And this wasn't happening once or twice. It was a whole spree of them. Someone that I know actually had this attempted robbery happen to him. 
he was able to get away and not give up his coat. I don't know. If I had a gun pointed at me, I'd be like, take the coat. But just your average little multi-day crime spree here in Washington, D.C., just taking people's articles of clothing off of their bodies and speeding off to the next victim. Think actually about how scary that is. A lot of this is happening in broad daylight. All you're doing is walking, maybe during the workday, and you've got a coat on because it's really cold, and you don't know if the cars driving by are filled with criminals with guns who might try to steal and, I guess, resell your fancy coat. So I guess you could just dress down. Think about that mentality. As you're getting ready in the morning, getting dressed in the morning, do I wear the expensive coat that I paid for because of weather like this? Or do I keep it in my closet because if I wear it during weather like this, it might get stolen from me at gunpoint? Good times here in D.C. One other small update. We told you last week about how there was this horrendous murder out in Portland, Oregon. You can go back and and listen at length to that segment on last week's podcast. I wrote about it at townhall.com. A woman who was terrorized and tormented by an ex, an abuser, for two consecutive months last year. And because of the system and the left-wing bail fund and the weak DAs and the pro-crime policies and judges making terrible decisions, the whole system, because of all of it, this man was let out over and over and over again, and he kept stalking this woman, harassing her, and then violently attacking her in violation of multiple judge orders. And yet they would put him back on the streets. And I think it was finally the fourth or fifth episode where he finally killed her, which he'd been threatening to do the whole time. The man should have never been out, especially after the first attack in violation of a court order. But they just kept giving him opportunities, and finally he finished the job. Absolutely heinous. The kids were in the house when this vicious murder happened. And part of my point in raising that issue is that when you are weak on crime, when you are pro-criminal effectively— in the name of equity or so-called justice, it's actually extremely dangerous because innocent people are going to get harmed. And since we're talking about Washington, D.C., there was a shooting in the metro system last week in which there was a metro employee who came to the aid of someone who was being harassed and robbed, it seemed, at gunpoint by someone who was committing a one-man crime spree. And this Metro employee, because there's a lot of lawlessness, like fair jumping, we've been talking about that. No one enforcing the law on people jumping the turnstiles and not paying. Separate issue, because Metro has been in a death spiral financially. This is part of the reason why. But when lawlessness is allowed to take root, things escalate. Things get out of control. So here was a Metro employee actually trying to intervene, and he was shot dead by this perpetrator as he was trying to defend a woman being accosted by this shooter, by this gun-wielding criminal. And surprise, surprise, it has emerged since 
that the man accused of that murder, who also shot other people, had a prior assault charge dismissed by the very progressive, pro-justice, pro-equity DA in Washington, D.C., where the system said, out of fairness, in pursuit of equity and social justice, case dismissed, back on the street for you. And that lesson was learned, that lesson was internalized, and now someone's dead. Can you feel the progress? And this isn't just any old city. This is the capital city of the United States of America, and it keeps getting worse. And it will get worse because the city council just lowered penalties for a bunch of violent crimes in their infinite wisdom. The madness continues. The Guy Benson Show does as well. On the other side of this break, Gordon Chang on the China espionage balloon. His take as soon as we come back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the program today. Thanks for being here on this Monday, GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website. The podcast is free every day. With us now is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. You can follow him on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, great to have you back here. Thank you so much, Guy. I am very eager to get your overall takeaways on this balloon espionage incident, starting with what the Chinese might be up to here, what the mindset might have been behind this type of effort. Apparently, it wasn't the first one. We can get into the U.S. response in a minute here. But what were your reactions when you first saw the story? And what do you think listeners need to know? The most important thing is the mindset of the Chinese, because it shows a uh, provocative, uh, belligerent, hostile nature, which we haven't seen before. Remember, they flew this balloon over Alaska, and then they went into the lower 48 states. They hovered over um, sensitive Air Force facilities, Maelstrom, F.E. Warren, Offit, Whiteman. These are places where we base our strategic assets. And there are very few places that are more important to the United States than these. And China just thought that it could freeze on through this. And, and really what we're saying, talking about is uh, probably an intimidation move on the part of uh, the Chinese regime um, to say to the world, look, the United States is incapable. Um, you shouldn't work with them. You should work with us. The notion that the U.S. has done has really been the primary narrative of the Communist Party for the last two and a half years. And I think what they were trying to do is reinforce it. One other possible explanation is that there were elements in the Chinese regime that did not want the conversation with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to occur. Blinken was supposed to go to Beijing, um, and the balloon incident occurred on the eve of that visit. Uh, This is sort of something that... um, we can only speculate, but the sense is that um, the, probably the regime in Beijing is in disarray right now, um, and it's either very belligerent or it's in very fragile condition. Neither story mm. is good for us. Well, I think that you're at least expressing the viewpoint of people who don't believe in coincidences, and it seems like you believe it was not a coincidence that the balloon took the path that it did. And it was not a coincidence that it arrived right leading up to in the days preceding this planned visit from the secretary of state over to Beijing, over to China. 
So I wonder if, let's say, they wanted to get caught, they wanted this to be detected, and they wanted to see what we were going to do about it. I mean, just starting right here, there's no way they would have assumed they wouldn't have been detected with this thing, right? It was gigantic. They must have known the U.S. would see it. Do you think maybe they were just trying to test, at least partially, our capacity to deal with it, our reaction, what they could get away with? Were they probing? I think that they were looking at the political response uh, as one of the um, elements of what they get out of this. Um, Because, yes, they know that NORAD would detect uh, the balloon as soon as it got anywhere close to our, our air defense identification zone, which covers area which is both territorial airspace but also international airspace that abuts us. Um, and indeed, um, their flight path um, put them on the path that um, NORAD looks at very carefully because it's the polar route, the polar access to the United States, which is where we would expect intercontinental ballistic missiles from either Russia or China to attack us. So, yes, they knew we would see it. You know, in terms of whether they thought uh, we would let them get away with it or not, maybe that was one of the things that they were still probing. But they had done balloon incursions before, um, but nothing nearly as provocative as this. The U.S. response, people are debating it. There was a lot of criticism of the Biden administration. You had Democrats for days downplaying the significance of the balloon, basically saying this isn't a big deal. Why are these Republicans freaking out? Then finally they shot the thing down over the Atlantic Ocean once it crossed past South Carolina. And then all those people started applauding like, oh, of course, we had to shoot it down. What a great thing for Biden to have done. I'm not sure there's an easy partisan lens on this one. I do question why we didn't shoot it down before it entered our airspace back when it was approaching Alaska. And would they have done the same thing if this had not become a publicly known controversy? I think those are very reasonable questions. Maybe, Gordon, the Biden administration privately had good reason to do what they were planning to do, or maybe they were just weak and indecisive and their hand was forced because the public found out about it. I mean, you could sort of go either way on it. It's hard to know for sure. Ultimately, though, this thing floated over the United States, over our airspace for more than a week, finally got taken out after it crossed the entire country. If you're imagining how Xi Jinping is watching and now dissecting the U.S. response. What do you think his new mindset is, having gone through this whole episode? Yeah, um, there's so many elements to that, but I think the most important thing is, as you say, um, the Defense Department did not voluntarily notify um, the American public. This was something that was tracked by uh, private individuals. They posted it on social media and elsewhere. And so eventually um, the Defense Department... There's like a local newspaper that finally really made it more public. And then at some point, the hand was forced. The hand was forced. What's really fascinating here, Guy, and which I think is the most critical aspect that both China, Russia, and others will be looking at, and, and the American public should be asking the question is, President Biden says that he was not briefed about this balloon until Wednesday, well after it had passed through Alaska and well after it entered the lower 48 states. Question is, is Biden telling the truth? Well, for that, we have to look at what Mark Esper, the defense secretary in the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, um, Secretary of State, John Bolton, National Security Advisor, and Trump himself have said. Um, 
all of those individuals said that they were never briefed on a Chinese balloon intrusion into the U.S. airspace while they were in office. And the important thing here is that uh, the Defense Department just said that there were three such incursions during the Trump administration, which is basically news to not only the American public, but to those who were charged with defending the United States. So is the now, conclusion, if, just, just to jump in, Gordon, if that's true, is the conclusion there that the military has tracked these types of balloons before and just decided that these incursions did not rise to the level of briefing up the food chain? Because that seems like a real head-scratcher if that's the case. That's the inescapable conclusion, and that means um, if I were the president of the United States right now, I think that I'd have cause to discharge not only the Secretary of Defense, but also the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for failing to notify me of a critical threat from China. Uh, I don't see how um, either of those two individuals should stay in office. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned a moment ago. You just mentioned China and Russia in the same breath. A Wall Street Journal report breaking just over the weekend China is actively aiding Russia's war effort in Ukraine. This is the war of aggression that Russia launched a year ago against a neighbor, invading their sovereign territory. The Chinese, we know, have been working more closely with Russia. There was a bilateral agreement that they were going to totally cooperate. But it seemed like Beijing was a little bit anxious about what was happening in Ukraine. They've tried to stay somewhat neutral but now increased reporting that Beijing on some level is helping the Kremlin. We also know that the Iranians are actively helping the Kremlin with drones uh, and other cooperation. Those three countries, those three regimes, the CCP, Russia, and Iran, have been engaged in joint war games. Gordon, it's hard not to think of that triumvirate as something of a modern-day evil axis and you see who's on their side and who's not on their side. It's, it's really not a complicated moral equation, at least in my mind. Yeah, and it's actually a quartet because North Korea has apparently been aiding the Russians as well. And the North Koreans couldn't do that without China's assent. So essentially you have the world dividing into two. You've got, as you say, China and Russia being the core of an axis, along with their proxies, Iran, North Korea, um, and others. And uh, the Biden administration doesn't want to acknowledge that. Um, now, I'm sure there are a lot of other people out in New York um, who are also, you can tell from what they write, um, who fail to um, tell us what the rest of us already know. And that is that this is a new Cold War. And we start we have to start thinking about it in realistic terms because we can't deal with the situation unless we will are willing to acknowledge it. If it is a new Cold War. That hopefully stays cold, although it's awfully hot in Ukraine. I mean, it's also inescapable that of that new access that we're talking about, the leader, right, the people in charge are China, right? It's, it's Xi Jinping and his regime at the top of that food chain, at least on, on that side of it. Yes, I think so, because uh, Russia could not continue the war in Ukraine without Beijing's active support. And it's, it's not just the supply of military equipment and military intelligence, which the Chinese have been supplying from the very beginning. It's basically Beijing effectively financing the war with elevated commodity purchases. Also, China opening up its financial system to Russian institutions that have been sanctioned. Um, there is central government and Communist Party um, media outlets have been amplifying Russian disinformation 
China's put its diplomats in service of Russia. This has been an all-in effort to support the war effort in Ukraine. And the story here is that the Biden administration keeps on warning China. China keeps on ignoring us. And the Biden administration refuses to do anything. So that's the reason why China thinks it can get away with this. Gordon Chang is author of the book, The Coming Collapse of China. His Twitter feed, at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, appreciate it. Very interesting days, and I'm sure we'll have you back soon. Well, thank you so much, Guy, because right now this is such a consequential moment in history. It is. And we're watching it here, and we love getting expertise from people who know of what they speak, including Gordon Chang, our guest. We'll take a quick break. We'll step aside, come right back. The Guy Benson Show returns right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Last week, I did a bit of a monologue early in the week about some terrorist attacks that had occurred in Israel and in the West Bank. And I got a lot off my chest on that whole front. I wrote about it last week at townhall.com at the tip sheet. You can go read that if you'd like. There's an update to one of the stories that we raised in the context of that conversation. You might recall that there was a deadly shooting at a synagogue during Shabbat. What, so two weekends ago. The next day, we saw another shooting, thankfully not deadly, not lethal, although the intent was to kill. A 13-year-old boy, a child, a child terrorist, Palestinian, outside, right nearby an Israeli settlement in the West Bank, shot a father and son. Tried to kill them. They both survived, fortunately. The shooter was neutralized but not killed. And we made the point on the show that the reaction among the Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank, in fact, whenever there are successful terrorist attacks against Jews in Israel, a lot of the Palestinian reaction is glee. They shoot off fireworks, they hand out candies, they cheer. This is the toxic stew in which Palestinian children are raised. They are raised to hate. Therefore, and to dehumanize, I should add, and therefore it should not be terribly shocking, even though it is horrifying, when one of those children decides to take up arms and try to act on the dehumanizing hatred that they are taught, that they are brainwashed with from very early ages. So you had a 13-year-old who tried to kill two Israelis. Now, I bring that up again because over the weekend, Reuters, which is one of these big global journalism outfits, right, one of the wire services, Reuters published a piece that effectively glorified the assailant. It was very sympathetic. It almost read like an ode to this kid, the would-be murderer. His victims were not named in the piece, but he was named with, I'd say, a very sympathetic or at least empathetic backdrop where they painted him to be a passionate soccer fan, He had dreams of being a chef one day. And it was sort of like, look at this young, promising life. And people are puzzled why he did this, almost like humanizing the shooter. 
which I guess to some extent you can understand, but his victims, whom he clearly dehumanized, weren't even named in the piece. This Reuters story also quoted this kid's family as claiming that he was not involved. He was not the perpetrator. He was not the assailant. In fact, he was just the victim, which is a lie. It's on video. There is some very scary surveillance footage of this kid with a handgun, hiding behind a gun, sort of on a street, kind of an alleyway, and then he comes out and starts shooting. And there was a public safety officer who reacted very quickly, returned fire, and shot the kid. It's all captured on camera. And yet you have this kid's family quoted in the story saying, oh, no, he didn't do it. Right? He just got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he's a victim. Untrue. And the story sort of mentions that surveillance footage or video footage seems to potentially contradict it. But that doesn't stop the family from putting out this misinformation. The overall thrust of this piece from Reuters was portraying the teenager as this really good aspirational kid who was just innocent and forward-looking with his whole life in front of him. And to kind of say like, oh, are the actions really his fault? First of all, of course, ultimately, people have agency over their own behavior. Secondly, if the other framing of the story was to really expose and condemn the culture of death that exists in a lot, unfortunately, of Palestinian society where they celebrate death, where they reward martyrdom, where they inculcate utter hatred, murderous hatred into their own children. Right? If that toxicity were the point of the Reuters story, to highlight that sickness as an indictment of a lot of the values that are taught in that society, that would be one thing. But that also wasn't the case here. So this is part of what Israel is up against. In case you're curious, the author of the piece, the journalist, in her Twitter biography, describes herself as a Palestinian journo reporting for Reuters. She went to Columbia Journalism School. And I'm not going to call it a total puff piece on a terrorist, but it was uncomfortably close to that. Again, with nary a mention of the names of the people who were targeted, the innocent people who were shot. It is amazing that there are a lot of people in this world, in the international community, particularly on the hard left, who believe that in the moral equation in this conflict, Israel is the bad guy, not the culture that teaches its children to want to wipe an entire other people off the face of the map. And the whitewashing and the excuses and the lies that come pouring in in service of that narrative, I think can be quite frustrating and depressing at times. But again, it gives us a sense of what the Israelis are up against. This was Reuters with a really gross piece, in my opinion. So I wanted to highlight that since we mentioned it last week as well. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Oh, boy. There's a New York Times story today about Kamala Harris that is brutal. We will read from it with reaction straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
It's the happy hour on this Monday on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Catch me tonight on the panel. Special report around 645 Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. It's myself, Katie Pavlich, Byron York, anchor Brett Bayer here in studio just down the hall at our Fox News DC Bureau. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here on the radio program. GuyBensonShow.com, all the ways to listen live. Of course, that podcast, free when the show is over every day, on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by The Finish Long Drink. Absolutely delicious. We recommend it if you haven't tried it already. They continue to explode in popularity all across the country. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. We welcome a new affiliate to the Guy Benson Show family this week. It is KDWN, KDON, the talk of Las Vegas, weeknights from 6 to 8, local, fabulous, Las Vegas, Nevada. Love to have you guys on board. Thank you for joining our show. I would like to talk about a New York Times story that came out earlier today. It's about the vice president of the United States and some of her struggles. Let's put it that way. And this piece is devastating. It begins with this anecdotal lead about a trip that she took to Chicago over the summer to give a talk to some teachers like a teacher's union. And on her flight from D.C. to Chicago, she was unhappy with the text of her speech as prepared, and she ordered her team to rewrite it and punch it up and make it more consequential. I don't really think that the anecdote at the beginning of the story is terribly helpful, other than underscoring the reality that Kamala Harris, I think, is experiencing a great deal of flop sweat. She understands that public perceptions of her are not good. And she is laboring to try to improve those perceptions and change her political trajectory. Which is, again, like so much about this woman and her vice presidency, straight out of Veep, the HBO comedy, with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Which is at least intentionally comedy, right? That is written by comedy writers to be funny. The Harris vice presidency is often funny, but not intentionally so. So the Times story is headlined, Kamala Harris is trying to define her vice presidency. Even her allies are tired of waiting. And there's so much to digest in this piece. I'm going to try to hit some of the highlights. Let me pick it up here. Quoting, the painful reality for Ms. Harris is that in private conversations over the last few months, dozens of Democrats in the White House, on Capitol Hill, and around the nation, including some who helped her put her on the party's 2020 ticket, said she has not risen to the challenge of proving herself as a future leader of the party, much less the country. Even some Democrats, whom her own advisors referred reporters to for support of quotes, confided privately they had lost hope in her. I mean, that is one of the knife twists in this long story. Her little loyal circle identified some people out in Democrat world who they thought would furnish the New York Times with positive quotes about their boss. 
and the Times went to those people and even a bunch of those people off the record or at least on background said they had lost hope in Kamala Harris. That is pretty bleak. Through much of the fall, the story says, a quiet panic set in among key Democrats about what would happen if President Biden opted not to run for a second term. Most Democrats interviewed, who insisted on anonymity to avoid alienating the White House, said flatly they did not think Ms. Harris could win the presidency in 2024. Some said the party's biggest challenge would be finding a way to sideline her without inflaming key Democratic constituencies that would take offense. This goes back to the fixation on identity that we see so often on the left, where it's like the high priests of wokeism focus on immutable characteristics above all else, which then makes it very uncomfortable when there is someone who's underperforming and perhaps hurting the cause who nevertheless checks a bunch of boxes and therefore it's difficult to criticize or to maneuver around that type of person whether it's the vice president, whether it's the press secretary, whether it's the totally unqualified health and human services secretary. We've talked about these things in recent months here. But think about the state that the Democrats are in where they were in quiet panic mode over the prospect that Joe Biden might not run again. Joe Biden, a president in the low 40s on job approval, who's 80 years old, We've talked about some of the new polling showing an overwhelming majority of the American people not excited about the idea that he's going to run again. They don't want him to seek a second term. But in Democrat world, official circles, the real panic is that he might not run because then they could be stuck with Kamala Harris or the very difficult business of bypassing her which, again, would violate a lot of the identity politics rules of the road that they've created for themselves. I think it's kind of a pretty dark scenario when your party is freaking out that Joe Biden might not run again. (laughs) I mean, that is not a great place to be, I would say, from a Democratic perspective. The story goes on. Now with Mr. Biden appearing all but certain to run again, The concern over Ms. Harris has shifted to whether she will be a political liability for the ticket. Given that Mr. Biden is 80 already and is the oldest president in American history, Republicans would most likely make Ms. Harris, who's 58, a prime attack line, arguing that a vote for Mr. Biden may in fact be a vote to put her in the Oval Office. I mean, just kind of look at the demographics of it. These are the Democrats. They are so worried about Kamala Harris and her flaws that they are now openly talking to the New York Times about whether she could drag Biden down in a 2024 reelect. Because they're admitting that what the Republicans would do is say, Joe Biden is old. If he does not serve the full term, can you really imagine Joe Biden doing this for six more years? Does he have six more years of presidenting in him based on what we've seen the last two years? That's on a lot of voters' minds. Whether you like it or not, and Republicans are going to say it is extremely important to think about who the vice president is, more so than ever, do we really want Kamala Harris one heartbeat away from the presidency? I'd say that would be more potent than it was in 2020. Democrats know it. In fact, they quote one in the Times piece. John Morgan, prominent fundraiser for Democrats, including a Biden fundraiser, 
former Florida finance chairman for Bill Clinton. He says, that will be, in my opinion, one of the most hard-hitting arguments against Biden. It doesn't take a genius to say, look, with his age, we really have to think about this. That is an on-the-record quote from a Democratic mega-donor tied into the Clintons, shiving Kamala Harris. It's amazing. They're not just panicking about the prospect of having to figure out a way to avoid her being at the top of the ticket if it came to that. They are extremely worried and nervous about her role at the bottom of this ticket because of Joe Biden's age and the way that Republicans might message that issue to voters in 2024. He said so far, this is the Democratic mega donor, Harris has not distinguished herself. The story notes that 39 percent of Americans approve of Ms. Harris and her job performance. That's based on a recent aggregate of surveys compiled by 538. That puts her below Mr. Biden's approval rating, which she's been basically the whole time. Right. Biden has been wheezing through sucking wind for almost his entire presidency, especially post-Afghanistan. He has not posted impressive numbers. Hers have been worse. Now, here's where the problem starts to brew on the Democratic side with some of these warring camps already taking warning shots at one another. Right, The pro-Harris side, or at least the pro-identity politics side, they're saying, and we've seen this actually from Kamala's own camp, whenever there's a big piece out about her, they instantly go to the woman of color, double standards, unfair attacks, different set of rules, that whole set of talking points. And that's the case here as well. Some Democrats, quote, see a double standard applied to a prominent woman of color. And someone who is quoted on the record defending her is James Clyburn, the very influential Democrat of South Carolina, where, by the way, they're trying to move the nominating process to put South Carolina first. They want to further empower black voters. They've made that explicit. Clyburn is largely responsible, I think, for Biden being the nominee in 2020. He clearly is defending Harris on this, and they're using sex and race as a weapon to fight back in all of this. These are their rules. They've created a trap for themselves, and they might get stuck in that trap with Kamala Harris one way or another. Later on in the New York Times story, we get this. After her disastrous interview with Lester Holt of NBC News, June 2021, in which she struggled to articulate the administration's strategy for securing the border. White House officials, including some in her own office, noted that she all but went into a bunker for about a year, avoiding many interviews out of what aides said was a fear of making mistakes and disappointing Biden. Members of Congress, Democratic strategists, and other major party figures all said she had not made herself into a formidable leader. Two Democrats recalled private conversations in which former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton lamented that Mrs. Harris could not win because she does not have the political instincts to clear a primary field. Think about the world of hurt you must be in when Hillary Clinton is knocking you for not being a winner. Right. When Hillary's saying that person doesn't have what it takes to win, given her track record. Losing to a first time candidate in Barack Obama when she was going to be the anointed nominee back in 2008, and then losing to Donald Trump in a general election, badly miscalculating, never going to Wisconsin, 
if that person with her political instincts is looking at Kamala and pointing, being like, whoa, that is a dumpster fire. That's not a positive assessment. Now, for what it's worth, in the Times story, there's a Hillary Clinton spokesperson denying that Hillary had said such things, which, of course, means that, of course, she said these things because no one believes Hillary Clinton or her spokespeople. Right. There's something of a George Santos effect here. If Hillary says something, it's a pretty good bet a lot of the time to assume it's probably false. If you had to bet 20 bucks right now, has Hillary been bad-mouthing Kamala this way or not? My 20 bucks is clearly on yes. And her spokesman, Nick Merrill, denying it only makes me want to double down. Make it 40 bucks. Then we have this part. Aides have encouraged her to liberate herself from the teleprompter and show the nation the Kamala Harris they say they see when the cameras are off. Now, this is an age-old trope in politics where a politician is struggling. Without fail, you get some of their inner circle lamenting the fact that if only the public could see what we see. We actually got this a lot about Hillary Clinton, right, how she's actually super charming and wonderful in other settings. And then weirdly, the cameras turn on and she becomes this horrible person that people don't like. Usually, almost always... This is a case of the actual candidate or political figure having not just an optics problem, but problems much deeper than that. It's like the last refuge of people on a sinking ship politically. Oh, people, they're just so misunderstood. People need to see the real so-and-so. Maybe that applies from time to time, but The idea that the issue here for Kamala Harris is that she is too tied to the teleprompter. She needs to really liberate herself from the teleprompter and speak off the cuff more. With all due respect, we have seen quite a lot of Kamala Harris speaking off the cuff. And it is, to put it kindly, not good. Most of her cringe comes from her extemporaneous speaking, not her teleprompter speaking. When she is liberated from the teleprompter, just Kamala being Kamala, we get things like cut 23. I think that there can be no higher priority than what we have been clear is our highest priority. We got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. And also lift up the voices of all people who will be impacted in the way that they will be impacted. Because it spans the generations in addition to being intergenerational. I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that the significance of the passage of time, it is time for us to do what we have been doing, which is why we will work together and continue to work together. And then they launched. Yeah, they did. (laughs) We all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. That has a, a, a long history of, of being part of America's history. I acknowledge one must acknowledge. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. I love Venn diagrams. <laughs> Liberator from the teleprompter. Let Kamala be Kamala. We just heard Kamala being Kamala. And the result is the panic That culminated in this New York Times story. And you know what? I can't really blame them. Can you? 
The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. The Guy Benson Show, back here. It's the happy hour. So I have to mention this, because we take almost every opportunity to talk about fast food on this show. We're classy that way. I was just in California last week. As you know, I did the show from L.A. Thursday and then Palm Springs on Friday. Yesterday, I was flying back east, which was a bear, by the way. Palm Springs to Houston, layover, back home. You lose the three hours, got home at midnight. Unpleasant, but the day started well because on my way to the airport, I asked my Uber driver, and I did tip her for this, can we swing by an In-N-Out burger? On the way to the airport, I haven't had it. I have rare opportunities to eat it. Can we do that? And she was like, absolutely. The problem was I was given some fake news. Someone told me that they opened their doors at 10 a.m. It was actually 10.30 a.m., and the timing wasn't going to work out. So we pulled up to the In-N-Out. They were technically not yet open. The door sign with the hours actually said 10.30 a.m. beyond. The sign on the front door confirmed 10.30 a.m., but at this point it was like 10.05. I tried the door. It was not locked. So I walked in. They were still getting ready. They didn't have anyone at the register yet, but they're very friendly, famous for their nice service. So a young woman said, hello, can I help you? I said, I know you're not open yet, but please take pity on me. I'm an East Coaster. I never get to eat your burgers. Can I possibly order one earlier? And she said, yes, it would be our pleasure. So I got a double-double animal style. I ate it in the back of the Toyota Prius. Thank you very much to that young woman, for the people at that In-N-Out Burger, to my Uber driver who accommodated the whole thing. It was absolutely delicious. And I'm just waiting for the contrarian takes to roll in. Oh, it's overrated. False. Fact check. False at least as far as we're concerned, on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Guy Benson with you here on the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. In our first hour today, we welcome back to the program Trey Gowdy, former House Oversight Chairman, also a Fox News contributor, host of Sunday Night in America, every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. He's also got a new book out called Start, Stay, or Leave. We talked about the book and a few other pertinent topics with Trey Gowdy earlier. Here's a taste. Start, Stay, or Leave, you're offering kind of life advice, not to young people exclusively, but as people are sort of starting off their lives, starting off their careers, you're trying to help folks Think through making big decisions in their lives. What's the elevator pitch on this book, and what's some of the top-level advice you can share with us? Yeah, well, thank you, Guy. Just We get one shot at this gift called life, and a lot of life. I mean, think about the decisions you make, Guy, where to go to school, what to major in. Um, I mean, you're in D.C. right now, but you've other other options. So, I mean, life is about decisions, and I argue to people if we can kind of think of what we want to be remembered or said by those that care the most about us at the end, are we making decisions that get us closer to that final or closing argument? So I've made a ton of mistakes. I've left jobs that I loved, and I've stayed in jobs that I didn't like. And both were probably the right decision, but how to balance logic and and passion or emotion with intuition and become the best decision makers we can be. One of the decisions that you made was to leave Congress, even though being 
in a position at the time that you were influential, you had a gavel, you were making your way sort of up the food chain in Congress, and you finally said, you know what, no, it's time for me to leave. Is that something that you ever look back on with regret, part one? Part two, given part of the bio that I just read, your role as the chairman of the Oversight Committee, we just had the new chairman of that committee on Friday. What advice would you offer him and the folks on that committee on the right side of the aisle in terms of their priorities, their focus over these next two years, having sat you know, with that gavel before? Well, Jamie is going to do a lot better job than I did. I was lucky I got to follow Jason Chaffetz. So if I showed up sober for work, that was considered successful. <laughs> I'm kidding. He doesn't drink. Wow. Uh, I'm kidding. I love Jason Chaffetz. The, the, the big <laughs> thing, guys, is to set the right expectations. Um, and, and that's, you know, one of the – no, I do not regret leaving uh, Congress. And one of the reasons for that is – you know, we tell folks, voters and our constituents that we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And the reality is we're going to try to do some of that. We may not be successful. I mean, yeah, Jamie gets to send subpoenas, but it's the executive branch that enforces those subpoenas. So can he compel witnesses to come before him? Can he compel documents? Not if it goes to court, because I promise you the Biden administration is not going to prosecute a contempt of Congress citation against anyone else in the Biden administration. So right expectations. I'm not saying, like, you know, be unambitious. I'm just saying level with people. This is what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to get these witnesses in. We're going to try to find out X, Y, Z, whether it's a memo from the Department of Justice, whether it's the feckless withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're going to do our dead level best. But, you know, elections have consequences, and when you do not have the executive branch, then you do not have the power to enforce the law. So Jamie and other Republican chairpersons are dependent upon the executive branch to back them up. And one of my critiques or criticisms about the state of our country is we've kind of lost branch integrity. We've kind of lost this notion that we may be in different parties, but we're in the same branch. We're going to stick up for this branch. We're a very executive branch-centric country now and judicial and judicial branch, right. everything yep. but the legislative branch. Let's talk about electoral politics and the executive since you brought it up. Democrats moving to put your state, South Carolina, at the very front of the line in their nominating process. Republicans are saying, nope, we're sticking with tradition. The Democrats are doing their moves, it appears, absolutely at the behest of Joe Biden. South Carolina was instrumental, of course, in his political comeback and ultimately claiming the nomination in 2020. So what do you make as a South Carolinian? What do you make of that plan? Do you think that Republicans would be wise to follow suit? Are you more loyal to the process or to your state? I'm just sort of wondering how you're thinking about that, because it's it's an interesting shift that they're attempting. It is, and 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 you're you're a lot brighter than I am, guy. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you're moving to a state that you literally have zero chance of winning in a in a general election. I mean, the Democrats not going to win South Carolina in my lifetime. My full interview with Trey Gowdy available online, guybensonshow.com, also in our free podcast. The whole show every day, beginning to end, totally free on demand. Guybensonshow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. 
a very unfortunate turn of events in terms of a household appliance that went kaput at a very inopportune time, leading to some cringeworthy stuff. We'll explain all of it when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. See you on special report on the panel coming up in the next hour. Fox News Channel. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. Podcast free every day. So as I mentioned earlier in the hour and as we talked about last week, I was in California Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then flew back yesterday. And I will admit to feeling some degree of guilt for this reason. It was really cold in the Northeast for a number of those days. Like, finally, temperatures hit where they are often expected to hit in January or February. But we'd been sort of getting off scot-free in sort of the New York, D.C. corridor. And then the chill arrived. And that happened to coincide with the hot water heater at our house going on the fritz. We have one of the more modern tankless hot water heaters, and at first it was just sort of not working properly, and then we would go down to the basement and we would flip the switch in the circuit breaker, and then it would sort of reset and work again. So that was a temporary solution that was working okay, like maybe Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. Then I skipped town, went to sunny Southern California with very nice temperatures, The cold weather hit hard in the Northeast, and the little temporary fix was no longer working. The hot water heater was absolutely malfunctioning. No hot water in the house. None. And it wasn't even room temperature or lukewarm water. It was extremely cold water. Just not eligible for showering, certainly. So not only was my husband, Adam, stuck at the house by himself with me out of town. He also had friends coming in for the weekend, childhood friends, staying with us. And no one could shower at our house. So we did warn them. So they made other arrangements. They were seeing other friends. I guess they worked something out. Adam is much handier than I am. I'm not a handy person. I'd be like, oh, I'll just write a check. Let's get a new thing. We'll get a whole brand new one. Adam was convinced it was fixable. They had one plumber come in who apparently looked at the thing for an hour and a half and said, there are no fixes. You can't run diagnostics the way this thing is designed. You can maybe do this one flush thing, but you you might need a brand new one. And he decided, Adam did, to get a second opinion. He actually called the manufacturer, got on like a first-name basis with one of these people, And they're like, oh, no, you absolutely can run diagnostics. We can figure out what's wrong with it. So the other plumber was absolutely wrong. Charged us hundreds of dollars to be completely wrong. So then Adam figured out with this person on the phone what was up, what parts we needed. He ordered those parts direct from the manufacturer, tried to get them express shipped to the house. It was still going to take X number of business days. And, of course, there was a weekend involved here. And then he had to find another plumber to come in and actually do the servicing. So while I'm out in very nice temperatures in California, plus staying at a nice hotel 
with a completely functional shower, he was in very cold Washington, D.C. area with house guests unable to shower in our own home. So he spent the last like three or four days alternating among neighbors' houses. That's his, That's how he had to bathe. Just begging neighbors, I'm so sorry, can I come use a hot shower of yours for 15 minutes? Now, we have great neighbors. Everyone was very accommodating and super nice. We are giving people bottles of wine as thank yous for this. And as of just a few hours ago, my understanding is the issue has been resolved. The parts arrived this morning. The plumber, the good plumber who knows what he's doing, arrived today. Hot water is restored. So I missed almost all of this ordeal. That's why I feel a little bit guilty. But I had a small taste of it this morning. So I was on Stu Varney's show on Fox Business Network around 10 a.m. Eastern today. And I needed to shower before that in order to just wake up and be TV ready and the hair and everything. I needed to bathe. It just was not an option. So one of our neighbors had been made aware of this. She texted me in the morning. She's like, hey, if you want to come over anytime, you're welcome to it. So I had my little toiletry kit. I had a towel. I had a change of clothes. I like threw on a baseball cap and I walked across the street, used the shower. And I don't know why I felt guilty about it, but I absolutely did. And like, it's not that much of an inconvenience for them just to say yes. It's very nice of them. But to me, it felt like a huge ask. Like, can I come bathe at your house? Like, you don't want to have to ask anyone for that, but we did. Then I walked home afterwards, and I don't quite know why, but it almost felt like I was doing a walk of shame. (laughs) I don't know why, because it's not the same. It just isn't the same, but that's how I felt, walking back across the street. Like, random people being like, oh, what's he doing with his bath towel and a toiletry kit? It just – it was an odd sight. I was probably way too in my own head about it. But now it's fixed. So thanks to everyone who helped make it happen. I was not one of them. I think I helped contribute to the the final bill for the plumber, but that's it. So my hat is off to Adam, who really was responsible for getting to the heart of the problem and fixing it. It just took a long time. And so I think in total it was – Four and a half days of absolutely no hot water at the house, coinciding with some of the coldest days of the year. Well, I was gallivanting in Palm Desert (laughs) out in California. And the only little taste of it I got was this morning with my quasi walk of shame from the neighbor's house. Christine, for some reason, I feel like you're enjoying this. I mean, I'm not going to say that on air, but... Boy, am I giggling back here. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I what's, said it. What's most entertaining to you about this, Christine? <laughs> like, I'm just picturing you, like, do you just go in your bathrobe, have your, like, you know, a rubber ducky in one hand, you know, a bottle of shampoo in the other, <laughs> and off you go to the neighbors, like, do-do-do, going to take my shower. I think Adam had rotated among three different households, so it wasn't putting too much of the burden on it, any one neighbor. And then I went back to one of those neighbors' houses this morning. And it just – it was not a pleasant experience. It was a lovely bathroom, great shower. They couldn't be any nicer. But I felt weirdly shamed, even though it's not our fault at all. 
and we got the thing fixed as quickly as humanly possible, especially since we had the false start with the wrong diagnosis from the first plumber. But it was sort of just like, I hope no one sees me in this outfit walking back to my house from someone else's house. That's, I think, the walk of shame parallel. They end there, just for the record, obviously. But I think that's why the mentality creeped into my mind, like flashbacks to college type thing. That's what I was going to say. If that's your walk of shame, like, you're you're golden. I've had plenty of walk of shames. So that wasn't it. <laughs> oh, boy. I, uh, you know what? I actually don't want to know. It's, <laughs> I can't it's tell one you. Of those, yeah, no, I, that's, this is a family-friendly program, Christine. Also, I don't want to run afoul of HR at all. We don't need to know about what Cookie just described as her, quote, many walks of shame in the past. I, many, I believe, is the word that you just used. Um, so people can draw their own conclusions. But my walk of shame today was just uh, this situation. And also, by the way, where I also sort of lucked out on this is it's really not that cold today. The temperatures have come back up. So walking around in like a bathrobe, I was in sweatpants and, and a jacket, but like it wasn't that bad as opposed to, I think, Friday and Saturday it was really bad. So I dodged the bulk of the pain involved in this situation. So I, I think part of the reason that I'm doing the topic that we are here on the home stretch, it's just sort of an expression of guilt and gratitude to everyone who had to actually deal with a problem that I was able to not in a selfish way or an intentional way, but I was able to avoid and not really be terribly impacted by. But when you see my quaff on special report tonight, that's only made possible by Nick and Jen Shower. So thank you to them. And, of course, to Adam, who is definitely rolling his eyes very hard, if he's listening to this. He asked me if I was going to talk about it on the air because he's now also getting wise to the fact, just like your husband, that we talk about our personal stuff on the air. And so I, I had to confess, yes, we're going to talk about it. So there's a chance that he might tune in since his name might be mentioned. That's really the only way he'll tune into this show, in fairness. Any last thoughts, Christine? Yeah, I have two. Okay. <laughs> uh, number one, uh, cold showers are actually very, very good for you. Uh, Tony Robbins takes a cold plunge every single day. I'm starting to follow him a little more and more. Who's? I'm sorry, what's, what is that? He is like somebody, he's like a life coach. You don't know who Tony Robbins is? I don't. I don't seek out a life coach, Christine, because unlike certain other people, I don't really feel like I need one. Some people really, really need some life coaching, but go on. Are are you saying that's me, that someone is Uh, me? uh, Many people are saying. I'm not saying it explicitly. Well, he does. You have a second point. He does self-help books, infomercial, seminars. Anyway, he, he believes in the power of a cold plunge, so... You would have been okay. And number two, um, do you think White's ever done a walk of shame of any kind? Mm, probably. There's probably one morning where he only woke up and he rolled over and he, to his shock and horror, saw lying in his bed a copy of the New York Times, not the Wall Street Journal, and he read it. <laughs> and people would be horrified to know. I might have just outed him. He's cheated on the journal at some point. That walk of shame, brutal. I just want to say for the record, I gave you an opportunity to make a final comment, and your final comments did not include correcting the record 
on the many walks of shame. So that has just been basically confirmed well, the by prob- producer Christine. <laughs> well, the problem is I didn't say many, but I did say plenty. So I'm not sure if plenty. that's better. I think it's synonymous is my verdict. Many. Let's just add the words many and plenty. That's now on the record and we've got to run. It's the Guy Benson Show. I have to recover from all of this and go do special reports. See you there on Fox News Channel. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place for the radio. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.